welcome to Taking the Party Out of Politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it should be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more clearly how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. This is a little journey we are taking together about the systems and functioning of politics. Systems which we should all understand because those systems affect all of our lives, all of the time. Left-wing or right-wing, international, intergovernmental or parish council. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better by understanding what is supposed to happen, by understanding why it isn't always happening in the way it's supposed to, and by understanding what sorts of things we might do to make things better. This is season one, in which we're taking a look at how the government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. In season two, we'll be looking at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected, and then trying to do a good job. Finally, in Season 3, we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. In the introduction, we had an overview of what the issues are and a general idea of the route we're going to take through this and why this is important. In Episode 2, we started to think about why we have a government at all and the tacit, perhaps unspoken, agreement which exists between those who do the governing and those who agree to be governed, what we call the social contract. Last time, in episode three, we discussed what we mean by the word democracy, along with other ideas such as consideration for others and respect for minorities. Then we moved from there to start to explore the particular form of representative democracy which we actually use. And so, on to today. Today, we're going to explore how the very general idea of representative democracy actually pans out in practice by looking at how we select our representatives, both locally and nationally. Let's have a little summary so far. So we said at the end of episode three that we can't actually get everyone together to discuss and agree on every little issue. To get most things done, we elect representatives to take the decisions on our behalf. In a representative democracy, we choose someone locally to represent our interests and views, to read all of the details and to think about all of the implications. All the representatives get together to talk through all the issues. They get together in a place which is actually named after the process of talking, Parliament. The representatives then become a member of the group of people who talk through all the issues, a member of Parliament, MP. MPs are usually elected all at the same time, in a general election. Now, there can be by-elections, for example, where an MP dies and there has to be an election just in their constituency to select a replacement. But most of the time, all MPs are elected at the same time in the general election. The group of people in the area which an MP represents is called their constituency, or their seat. Because the number of MPs who are then in Parliament for each party is important, you can hear people talking about the party which has the most seats in Parliament, 
which makes it sound as though the seat is actually in Parliament. But it's not. An MP's seat is the constituency which they represent. In fact, confusingly enough, the House of Commons debating chamber, where they get together to talk, well, that's actually too small for all the MPs to sit down all at the same time, if they're all, all there at one time. So there aren't enough seats to seat all the representatives of the different seats. So today we're going to start to look at the process of selecting our representatives, both at a local level, selecting our local representative, and at a national level, selecting the group of representatives who will go on to form our government. But just before we do that, let's remind ourselves of what we said in the introductory episode, episode one. With our system of representative democracy, we're trying to achieve several things all at once. We are selecting with one vote every five years, a good local representative from a party we like with a manifesto we approve of. Now, about a third of us don't even bother to vote anyway. So perhaps more accurately, some of us are voting. And with that vote, we're somehow pretending that we are achieving all those things all at once in anything even approaching a satisfactory arrangement. Now, in fact, as we will see shortly, perhaps only 30% of the electorate actually votes for whichever party wins the election. Sometimes even less than that. That party then goes on to form the government and has a significant impact on what happens in the country, a significant impact on all of our lives for the next five years. Now, even before we get into the challenges of the mechanics of all of that, let's just think about the implications of all of that. Let's imagine that instead of a political party, we all had to select one supermarket which everyone would have to use for the next five years. That might be a bit more relatable because we probably all have to go shopping more than once every five years. But in this imaginary scenario where we are all agreeing where we're all going to shop, whichever supermarket won, well, we can be pretty sure that pretty much everyone would be annoyed with the restrictions on our choices, on the range of choices available to us, on where we all had to walk or where we all had to drive to go shopping very quickly. Well, that's just part of the range of compromises which we are sort of meekly accepting when we accept our electoral process without question. Once again, we are pretending to ourselves that we are selecting, with one vote every five years, a good local representative from a party we like, with a manifesto we approve of, and that that is good enough. Well, OK, that's the starting point, and we'll have even more on that in later episodes. But on to the topic for today. Today, we're going to touch briefly on the challenges of adequately representing the interests of not only majorities, but also the interests of minorities too. Secondly, we're also going to look at what it means to get a majority of the vote, to get elected. We're then going to look at whether a political party which goes on to form a government, which affects all of us pretty significantly for up to five years at a time, well, does that government ever actually get a majority of the votes cast? Spoiler alert, not often at all. Finally, we'll also touch on the issue of all those people who don't vote. What does that say about electoral mandates, the legitimacy to make changes, perhaps even to make big changes. First of all, though, let's look at the mechanics of the way we select our representatives. For someone who represents part of a country, 
we call the area which they represent their constituency, or as we said a moment ago, their seat. And the people in that part of the country are called their constituents. Now, for a single leader, such as a directly elected president, their constituency is the whole country. If there are two people between whom we have to choose our representative, two candidates, then it's possible, for the sake of simplicity, let's assume that a constituency has 100,000 people living there. Now, it's possible that all the 99,998 other people might vote for one candidate, and no one would vote for the other. It's more likely, however, that opinion would be divided. Perhaps 60% might vote for one candidate and 40% for the other. So the candidate with 60% of the vote would be elected. And that candidate would be expected to try to represent the wishes of all the 99,998 other people in the constituency, not just the ones who voted for him or her. Now, we can immediately see that even with the very best of intentions, it might be hard for the elected representative to be completely fair and to represent everyone equally. For example, imagine that you were elected on the basis of a set of promises to deliver on a specific set of policies, but a lot of people, a minority but still a lot, a lot of people didn't want that. Do you still push ahead and deliver that set of policies even though a lot of people don't want that. Or imagine the other way around, if you wanted the 60% who voted for you last time to re-elect you at the following election, well, maybe you feel that you should do what that 60% want, and not necessarily what everyone wants, to make sure that you're re-elected. Well, that's a problem, of course. We want our democratic system to represent the needs of minorities, as well as to represent the wishes of the majority. We want our system to value and to respect minorities, even if we're in the majority at the moment, because, well, we might be in the minority next time or on another issue. Now, there isn't an easy solution to this problem. As long as the majority keep electing the same representative, there isn't much that the minority can do to influence the representative to try to change what he or she does. In fact, the only way that the minority can change things is to try to persuade the majority to modify their wishes a bit, to include at least some of the things which the minority wants or needs. Now, that happens at least some of the time, but not all of the time. There are no guarantees. So far, so good. Well, not necessarily good, but at least relatively simple to understand. 60% of the vote, you get elected. But what if there are three or more candidates? Well, if there are three or more candidates, it certainly gets a bit more complicated. The problem here is what we call first-past-the-post at the constituency level. It would be nice and simple if one of the candidates got more than 50% of the vote. Then he or she is elected. Not really a problem. And some of the time, that does happen. Let's imagine that there are three candidates. One candidate got 20% of the vote... So did one of the other candidates, another 20%, but one of the candidates got all the rest of the votes, 60%. Some of the time, that happens. So, although there are still the issues we've already mentioned about whether the elected representative can still manage to represent the 40% who didn't vote for them, at least the elected representative got a clear majority of the votes which were cast. But with three candidates or four candidates or more candidates, it becomes quite likely that opinion, public opinion, will be divided 
across various preferences, political perspectives and so on. For example, one candidate might get 40% of the vote, one might get 35% and a third might get 25% of the vote. Now the candidate with more votes than anyone else is the one with 40% of the votes. Now this is where language can be misleading if we aren't paying attention. The candidate with 40% of the votes has more votes than any of the other candidates. That means the candidate has the most votes, but it does not mean that the candidate has most of the votes. Because although the candidate who has the most votes, 40%, has more than any of the other candidates, most of the votes were actually cast for the other two candidates, because 25% plus 35% is 60%. So the most votes is not the same as most of the votes. And at least sometimes it can seem as though the candidate who won in a particular constituency didn't just get more votes than any other candidate, but got most of the votes. And that's not the case. It's even worse because the vocabulary used talks about the majority, but the majority just means the amount of votes more than the next person. So if the next person got 35% and somebody got 40%, then they might have a majority of 5%. But that's not a majority of the votes cast. In a system such as the French presidential election, the leading two candidates in a first vote get through to a second round. So in our imagined scenario with three candidates with 40%, 35% and 25% of the vote, the candidate in third place with just 25% of the vote, well, they're eliminated. Then, in the second round, one or the other is going to get more than 50% of the votes cast, unless there's an absolutely perfect dead heat, but that really doesn't happen. Sometimes the candidate who came second in the first round can come through to win in the second round. For example, as we saw in the Argentinian presidential election in November 2015. There's also another way in which a winner can be decided by eliminating the candidate in last place, and that's by having a system of second preference votes. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But in the UK, we don't go in for two lots of voting or for second preferences. In local constituencies, the one who got the most votes, not a majority, just more than any of the others, well, that candidate is elected as the local representative, the MP. That means that in the example of three candidates getting 40%, 35% and 25% of the vote, the one who got 40% of the vote is elected, even though most people who voted actually voted for someone else. Remember, 35% and 25% is 60%. Now, sometimes this might not be too bad, but on other occasions it might be that the wrong person is elected. Or at least it might be that the candidate who is elected might not be the person whom the majority of the voters think would best represent them. Say, for example, that the two candidates who got 35% and 25% were both left-wing candidates. But the one who got 40% was a right-wing candidate. Although the people who voted for the least popular candidate would still have preferred their candidate to win, at least some of the time, it might be that they would still be preferred to be represented by the other left-wing candidate rather than by the right-wing candidate. The right-wing candidate, remember, got only 40% of the votes cast, even though 60% of the people wanted a left-wing candidate. 
Now, there are possible voting systems which would make allowances for this, even in a single round of voting. For example, there is transferable voting, which we mentioned a moment ago. In our example, the candidate with 25% of the vote is eliminated, and those votes are transferred to the candidates whom each voter indicated would be their second choice. In this case, the other left-wing candidate. That candidate then has an initial 35% share of the vote, plus a transferred 25% share of the vote of second choices, adding up to 60% of the votes. Now, that sort of system would mean that it is a left-wing candidate who is elected, not the right-wing candidate. Now, of course, this gets more complicated with more candidates and can make the process of voting quite challenging for the voters, sometimes having to indicate not just their second-choice candidate, but perhaps their 10th or even their 20th preferences. Now, you might think that the complications and challenges are worth it. In the example we've been discussing, at least we can say that if a majority of the voters prefer a left-wing candidate to represent them, then the transferable vote would mean that at least they get a left-wing representative. But in the UK, we don't want to give you that, because that's not the case in the UK. We call our system first-past-the-post. And often, the representative which is selected does not actually represent the majority of votes cast in that constituency. Now, let's take a small example. For example, let's take the constituency of Lincoln in the East Midlands. Before the 2017 election, it was a Conservative seat. Then, in 2017, Labour won the seat and Karen Lee was elected. There was an increase in the Labour vote of an extra 8.3% and Karen Lee got 23,333 votes which was more than the Conservative candidate, Carl McCartney, who only got 21,795. So Karen Lee, Labour, won. However, Karen Lee's 23,333 votes was actually only 47.9% of the votes which were cast. More votes than anyone else, but not most of the votes. Then, in 2019... The same seat went back to the Conservatives, and the same thing went the other way. Carl McCartney won with an extra 3.2% of the vote, taking his total number of votes to 24,267, which was more than Karen Lee's total of 20,753. But Carl McCartney still only got 47.9% of the votes. More than Karen Lee, more than any other candidate, but still not most of the votes. But in fact, the majorities here are still measured in thousands of votes. Now, I realise that this is almost a sidetrack away from what we're talking about. But while we're talking about majorities, have you ever thought about how small some of the majorities actually are? In the 2019 general election across the UK, 141 seats out of 650 were won by a margin of less than 10 percentage points. That's nearly 22% of all the MPs who were elected and nearly twice the size of the Conservative government's majority in the House of Commons. For example, in the constituency of Berry North, the Conservative candidate won with 21,660 votes, but the Labour candidate got 21,555 votes, only 104 votes less. The Conservative candidate won with 46.2% of the vote, and the Labour candidate lost with 46.02% of the vote. Anyway, if you think that is bad, then let's go back to what we were talking about, about some of the candidates not having a majority of the votes. Nationally, in the 2019 general election, 211 MPs were elected 
with less than 50% of the votes cast in their constituency. Remember, that's only the votes cast. It would be a much lower percentage of the people who could have voted. Now, that 211 MPs, that's nearly a third of all the MPs who were elected. And that third of all the MPs who were elected were elected with less than half of the votes which were cast in their constituencies. That's less than half of the people who actually voted. Now, of those 211 who got less than 50% of the votes cast in their constituencies, 19 of them got less than 40% of the votes cast. In the constituency of South Down, which is in Northern Ireland, the winning candidate got only 32.4% of the votes which had been cast in that constituency. So, apart from the challenge of a winning candidate trying to represent all the people in a constituency, including the ones who didn't vote for him or her, there's the added complication that many of the winning candidates didn't even get most of the people in their constituency to vote for them in the first place. For many of our elected representatives, more people voted against them than voted for them. Now, just how representative does that sound? And it gets worse. So, moving on. Summary so far. In a representative democracy, we choose someone locally to represent our interests and views, to read all of the details and to think about all of the implications. As we saw earlier, it's hard for an elected representative to fairly and accurately represent the needs and interests of all of their constituents. For example, the elected representative might feel that they have to concentrate on doing what the majority wants to ensure that they get re-elected, rather than to also ensure that the minorities get what they need or want. Now, added to that, as we've just seen, the the first-past-the-post electoral system means that we may or may not get the most representative representative anyway, because we may well have a representative who didn't get more than half the votes. But that's the way it is, or at least that's how it is at the moment. We are looking forward to hearing your ideas about how things might be organised differently. Anyway, that's in the future. For now, let's just get on with clarifying how things are supposed to be working, even if they often aren't working. Having been elected, all the representatives get together to talk through all the issues. They get together in that place which we've said is actually named after the process of talking, Parliament. The representatives then become a member of the group of people who talk through all the issues, a member of Parliament, MP. Now that's good for thinking about the stuff which someone else is suggesting, or perhaps for reacting to situations. But how do all these local representatives, these MPs, get together to make a plan for what our country wants, planning for the future, not just reacting to stuff that happens. Well, the MPs who think in a similar way get together as a political party. Now, that's a smaller group within the overall group of MPs, and they put together their plan, their policies, their manifesto. And so we end up electing not just any old local representative, but someone who is also a representative of a particular national party, whose policies and manifesto we are voting for as well. Now let's have a look at the first and clearest warping of the situation by those political parties. Ah, Spoiler, there are plenty more examples to come where political parties are twisting things. Now, as unrepresentative as it might be at the local level of individual constituencies, it gets worse at the national level. On the surface, it might seem that the party which gets the most candidates elected will represent the views of the majority of the country. But that's not the case. 
Now, added to the the first-past-the-post system at the constituency level, it's also the case that the party with the greatest number of candidates elected gets to form the government. But having a majority of elected candidates across the country doesn't mean that you had a majority of the national vote. Let's imagine that there are 100 constituencies, each electing one representative, so a total of 100 representatives. Even in a simple system with only two parties nationally and only two candidates in each constituency. Imagine this. In 60 constituencies, candidates for party A get 60% of the votes cast. So across those 60 constituencies, candidates for party A have a majority of the votes cast. So party A has 60 of the 100 representatives elected in total, which is a majority of the representatives elected. So... Party A forms the government. But perhaps in the other 40 constituencies, the candidates for Party B actually got 100% of the votes cast. Added to the 40% of the votes cast in the constituencies where candidates from Party A were elected, Party B actually has a majority of the votes cast nationally. So that's 40% in 60% of the constituencies and 100% in 40% of the constituencies, That's a total of 64% of the national vote. Now, this is just an example. In reality, there are more than two candidates in each constituency and more than two parties nationally. The maths can get more complicated, but it can certainly happen that the party which gets more candidates elected than any other party, or even a majority of all elected candidates, doesn't necessarily have a majority of the votes cast. Now, you could argue, well, hey, that's the system. Tough luck. The party which won in 60 constituencies just ran a better campaign. And that would be correct. The party which won in 60 constituencies certainly played the game better. But this is not a game. This is a system which is supposed to be providing us with representatives who will represent what we want and what we believe should happen. Just because one party played the game better... Does that mean that the rules of the game are good enough? Or rather, is the system good enough if it leads to situations like this? Isn't the system supposed to create a group of elected representatives who actually represent what we want them to represent, not just a group of elected people who ran the best campaign? Now, in fact, it is normally the case that the party which forms the government does not have a majority of the votes cast. The government may have a majority of their candidates elected, Remember, referred to as seats. But no government since 1935 has had a majority of the votes cast, although some have got very close. For example, the Conservative Party famously got a majority of candidates elected in the general election in 2019. 365 MPs out of 650, so 56% of the seats. But they actually only got 43.6% of the vote nationally. Now, the example here is a simplification, and the remaining 56.4% of the votes cast nationally didn't all go to one party. But it is true that a large majority of people didn't vote Conservative in 2019. And if you want an even more extreme example, across all the constituencies in Northern Ireland in the 2019 election, 83.3% of the seats went to just two parties, despite the fact that those two parties only won 53.4% of the votes. 83.3% of the seats with only 53.4% of the votes. Well, it makes you think, doesn't it? Oh, 
And there's another thing too. Votes cast. Yes, added to the first-past-the-post system at the constituency level, the candidate with the largest number of votes is the one which wins, not the candidate with a majority of votes. And the first-past-the-post system at the national level, where the government is formed by the party winning in a majority of constituencies, not by winning a majority of the votes cast across the country, there's another big wrinkle in the system. People who don't vote. Now, we might say that people don't vote because they're disillusioned with party politics or because they're lazy or whatever. But the fact remains that a large segment of the people who are eligible to vote and registered to vote don't actually vote. In May 2015 in the UK, only 66.2% of voters actually voted. Now, sadly, that's actually pretty normal these days. Turnout in UK general elections in the last quarter of a century has been between 59.4% and 71.4%. In fact, to get a turnout over 80%, you have to go back to the early 1950s. So let's look at some of these elections in detail, some of the recent ones. Let's look at the UK general election of 2015. So in May 2015, only 66.2% of voters actually voted. That means that not only did the Conservative Party only get 36.9% of the votes cast in 2015, but that only 66.2% of voters actually voted. And that means that, if we do the maths, 66.2% times 36.9%, only 24.4% of the eligible voters actually voted for the government. Now, perhaps a similar proportion of those who didn't vote would have voted Conservative, but neither 24.4% nor 36.9% is particularly impressive. Then there's the UK general election of 2017. Famously a disaster for the Conservative Party. Majority lost rather than strengthened, right? Well, actually no, or at least yes and no. You see, the number of Conservative MPs in the House of Commons certainly went down. They had 13 fewer MPs after the election than they had before the election. They lost their majority in the House of Commons. Disaster, right? Except not exactly. The Conservative Party share of the vote actually went up by 5.5%. And yet our first-past-the-post voting system meant that the Conservative Party share of MPs in the House of Commons went down. And that was on an increased turnout, up by about 2.6% since the 2015 election. Now, that actually seems a bit unfair on the Conservative Party. You get more votes, you get a higher percentage of the votes on a larger turnout. Whichever way you look at it, more people voted for the Conservative Party in 2017 than in 2015. But the Conservative Party lost its majority in the House of Commons and the result is regarded as an embarrassing defeat for the Conservative Party at the time, Theresa May. Well, a similar effect can be seen in the 2019 UK election. The headline, which we probably all remember, is that it was a spectacular result for the Conservative Party, which moved from not having majority, 318 seats, to having one of the strongest majorities which any party has enjoyed for decades, 365 seats. That's an increase of 47 seats, which is over 7% of the total of 650 seats available. In all the headlines, justifiably a spectacular result for the Conservative Party. Or was it? If we examine the additional share of the vote which the Conservative Party won, compared to the previous election in 2017, the Conservative Party's share of the vote only increased by 1.2%, compared with the additional 7% of MPs. 
In fact, the turnout in that election actually went down by 1.5% compared to 2017. So, yes, the Conservative Party won the majority of seats, and yes, the Conservative Party's share of the vote increased by 1.2%. But the Conservative Party's share of the vote was actually only 43.6% of the votes cast, even though the Conservative Party won 56% of the available seats. Now, over 56% of people voted for other parties. Now, coincidentally, that's the same percentage as the number of MPs who were elected which were Conservative. But that 43.6% of the votes cast for the Conservative Party was only of the 67.3% of people who turned out to vote. So, in fact, only just over 29% of people who could have voted voted for the Conservative Party. OK, so what about proportional representation? Would proportional representation be any better? Well, perhaps. If we had a system of proportional representation, then the number of MPs elected would accurately reflect the voting across the country rather than the peculiarities of each constituency. Now, it's actually quite interesting to look at how the results would be different if we had a national system of proportional representation. In the results of the 2019 general election, the Conservative Party, remember, won 43.6% of the votes cast, but got 365 out of the 650 seats which were available, or 56% of the seats available. If the seats were distributed proportionally, that's if the number of MPs elected were to represent the proportion of the national votes cast, then the Conservative Party would only have won 288 seats. Crucially, that's 77 seats fewer than they actually got. But even more crucially, it's well below the 326 which they would need for a majority. Who knows what things might have been different had the Conservative Party had to compromise on different policies. For smaller parties, the difference is even more stark. The Scottish National Party got 3.9% of the vote, but got 48 MPs. That's about twice as many MPs as their national vote share would entitle them to if we used a national system of proportional representation across the whole of the UK. Though, to be fair, the SNP only stands in Scottish constituencies, so perhaps that comparison isn't really fair. Well, OK, what about for the Green Party, then? The Green Party got 2.7% of the national vote, but only one MP. If the Green Party had the number of MPs which reflected the Green Party's share of the vote, the Green Party would actually have 18 MPs. Not one, 18. Of course, there are also problems with a national system of proportional representation. For example, if there is one MP elected nationally because such and such a party got one 650th of the national vote... Well, then who does that one MP represent? Certainly not everyone, because 649 out of every 650 people across the country voted for other people. But who does that MP represent? Where is or who is in their constituency? Well, that sort of problem can be partly resolved if there is a sort of a regional proportional representation. This used to happen with elections for the European Parliament. Well, it still does in other European nations, but not in the UK anymore. A region would elect between 3 and 10 
MEPs, depending on how large a region was or how many people lived in a region. And the vote for each region was distributed in a sort of a version of proportional representation. So, in a constituency with three MEPs, if three parties had candidates and each candidate got 33% of the vote, then each party would have one candidate elected. Of course, this was better than just a first-past-the-post system. At least there was a broader representation of the electoral preferences of voters across each regional constituency. But it still wasn't perfect. It was a sort of approximation to proportional representation. For example, if a constituency with three MEPs had 35% of the vote for Party A, 25% of the vote for Party B, and 20% for Party C, then it would seem reasonable that there would be one MEP from each party, A, B and C. But the 15% of the vote that went to Party D and the 5% for Party E, well, that would still be unrepresented. So it's better, but it's still not quite accurate across the nation as a whole. It's just a regional approximation. The key questions to consider here are, first, whether we would have a more accurate representation of some smaller voting preferences, such as having 18 Green MPs rather than just one. And second, whether such a system would make our government be more collaborative, more cooperative, more inclusive in forming its policies. If our system of elections didn't give a strong parliamentary majority to a party which received just 43.6% of the votes cast, and remember that's only 29% of the possible votes, if everyone who had had a vote had voted, if our system didn't give a strong parliamentary majority to that party, maybe that party would have to be more inclusive, have to talk more about things before it rushed ahead and did things. Well, these are important questions to have in mind when we get to thinking about what ideas we might want to explore further when it comes to making our systems work better. Now, of course, that is not to say that the Conservative Party has done anything wrong. Absolutely not. Figures for previous elections are often equally unbalanced, and the lack of balance can be towards other parties too. In May 2015 and December 2019, as in many other elections recently, the Conservative Party was simply better at working within the system. In other elections, the same has been true of other parties. But does that system really give us a government which represents us? And if the government doesn't represent us, then is it really a representative democracy? Well, in season two, we'll take a look at an example of how it might actually be even worse than it already looks when we look at issues around government ministers and safe seats, the ones with huge safe majorities. But that's to come later. So, next time on Taking the Party Out of Politics. Next time, we will compare Parliament with the government to be sure that we understand which is which, where they overlap and where perhaps they shouldn't overlap. For now, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you'll take the time to tell your friends. And perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it just also really makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you.